This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Was the U.S. never really a Christian country, or was U.S. Christianity corrupted by politics? That's the question that Kylie Beach, a writer for the Australian-based Eternity News site, asked several days after the Capitol insurrection and several days before last week's presidential inauguration. I'll read a bit from her piece and we'll put a link to it in the show notes. The U.S. really did seem to be a particularly Christian country. Of course, Australian Christians were skeptical when, year after year, every Grammy Award winner thanked God in their acceptance of speech. It became a cliche, an anecdote that was sure to get a laugh and make a point in a sermon. Yet many wondered whether the cliche pointed to something good, to a society so saturated in Christianity that acknowledging God was second nature, even in the music industry. Did the U.S. only ever appear to be more Christian than other countries, or was its Christianity corrupted by politics? To put it frankly, are the people who declare themselves to be Christians in the U.S. really just quote-unquote cultural Christians? people who are ethnically descended from nations where Christianity was the primary religion, or people who have taken on the outward form of their grandparents' faith? Have they ever actually had a moment of conversion where they have decided to accept Christ as their Lord and Savior? Do they read their Bibles to try to learn what God is like? Do they pray and listen for His direction? Beach isn't the only Christian from around the world asking what to make of U.S. evangelicals after Trump. At the UK's Evangelical Alliance, executive director Gavin Kavler wrote a column for the Times with this headline, let us redefine evangelism after the Trump presidency. The Times likely meant to put here, let us redefine evangelicalism after the Trump presidency. Just a note there. We will also include a link to this in our show notes. He wrote that the word evangelical has become politicized and toxic even in the UK because of Trump politics. And he said this, But not all Christians outside of the U.S. were eager to distance themselves from Trump's politics. As someone who ran CT social media for nearly the entire Trump presidency, nearly all of our stories about his presidential decisions sparked serious debate from our readers outside of the country. And we wanted to talk about how non-U.S. evangelicals saw American evangelicals before Trump and what has changed over the past four years. You are listening to Quick to Listen where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson. I'm Editorial Director at Christianity Today. All right, Ted, I think this is going to be an interesting gut check because we have been seeing these articles come out, and I know you've had some interesting reactions to them, so let's hear it. Obviously, the focus on non-American evangelicals has been a significant passion for us at Christianity Today for a long time. It has been interesting talking with a friend of mine in uh, Australia, who actually introduced me to this article that you, that you read. They are, you know, kind of asking a lot of questions and a little bit confused. You know, oh, I thought I understood American evangelicals this way, but some of this stuff is is surprising in the different way in which American politics is being read abroad. There's been a number of really good scholarship pieces, books and journal articles, but especially some books that have come out in recent years on kind of the effect that American evangelicals have been having abroad. One we highlight in CT is this book by uh, David Schwartz, Facing West, American Evangelicals in an Age of, of World Christianity. They're really interesting books. One's The Kingdom of God Has No Borders, which is Global History of American Evangelicals. It's by Melanie McAllister. There's been a number of pieces that have looked at global evangelicals on their own to say, you know, like, you know, let's not frame everything globally, you know, the global evangelical movement. The majority of evangelicals in the world are not Americans. And in fact, you have uh, really good books like there's an interesting book called The New Centers of Global Evangelicalism in Latin America and Africa by uh, Steve Offit uh, from Asbury uh, Seminary. And I think some of that scholarship is really helpful. And what now I'm starting to see emerge and people starting to ask a little bit questions about is how should we see more and what are the opportunities for global evangelicals kind of to be speaking a little bit more back into 
American evangelicals. And we certainly have seen that historically. The Lausanne movement has had uh, had a huge effect in shaping American and to some degree British thought by having global evangelicals speak more prominently. That's what I... That's one of the things that CT is passionate about. We that's why we do so much international reporting. We want to have global evangelicals speaking to global evangelicals and to see Christianity in America as just one part of the body, not the main, not the main thing, not the not the head and the foot and the hand and the and the knee. In in a sense, this podcast is a version of what we do every day at CT. Morgan, you are global media manage, manager now. Uh, <laughs> very much the global thing. You spend most of your day uh, translating Christianity Today articles into other language. Tell me about your take on some of the stuff we've been reading about the global reaction to the end of the Trump era. All right. Just one small disclaimer. Coordinating the translations. Coordinating I, the translations. That would be cool if my you know, second and third language skills were at the level to translate, but not yet. Yeah, what I was going to comment on with regards to that is because we've really grown our translation efforts in the past couple of years, I'm in touch with people who are all around the world at all times, and American politics comes up a lot. In fact, some people just like to talk about it to get my opinion on it. It's just like, you know, how do you feel about that? What do you think about this? And a number of the folks on our translation team, not surprisingly, are American politics junkies. And in my experience, that is actually relatively common amongst a certain group of people where they just obsessively follow what's happening in there. That's really interesting to me. I mean, on the one hand, I expect most people to follow what's happening with regards to Trump and so forth, but the level of detail with which people have been following the first impeachment, the second impeachment, different things with our primaries last year has really surprised me. I think that also last year when we recorded this episode about QAnon, which I know that we recently reshared in the feed a couple of weeks ago, I thought it was really interesting to have someone who was not an American give us a taste of how they were experiencing QAnon, especially as something that was an American phenomena that was traveling overseas and their challenge to American pastors about how to combat extremism in their own churches, which is obviously something we also discussed a couple weeks ago with the Christian nationalism podcast that we did. But I really did want to hear some of the larger and deeper effects of, you know, what type of impact has the church had, um, has the American church had overseas and really what has changed? You know, I, I'm really interested in getting into what we had credibility on four years ago that we don't have credibility on now. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation to Get into it. I, I, you know, as far as gut check, yeah, I, <laughs> I'm not really surprised necessarily because I think American evangelicals are pretty unique. But then again, this podcast is always a good place for me to be wrong, and I'm curious about how, just how unique we are with how closely tied to politics we are. So, anyway, who is our guest today, Ted? Our guest today is Rene Bruhl. He is the pastor of Opera, an evangelical church in Rome. Uh, he's served as a student leader in the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students, IFES, in Brazil, Germany, Canada, and Italy. For those of you not familiar with IFES, it's uh, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship in the U.S. Is, is their kind of U.S. version of that. And IFES is kind of the umbrella group behind all of those InterVarsity-like movements. And Renee is also the author of The Paradox of Happiness. So as someone who has experience in all of these different countries and, and currently in Italy, we thought he would help us to get a good survey and, and help us uh, hear some global voices. So, Renee, thank you so much for being on Quick to Listen. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right, Renee, let's start with Brazil. This is where you are from. And I want to first ask you about the role that you saw American evangelicalism play in your faith journey while you were growing up. Yes, I grew up in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Family used to attend a church plant founded in the 80s by a Brazilian evangelist and church planner. It was in many ways a wonderful Baptist church and very grateful for it. And it grew and became a large and influential church in Sao Paulo then in the 90s. We had some direct influence from American evangelicalism, I would say. Some of our pastors at that church had studied in the United States. 
Then the church hosted the Willow Creek Association conferences about leadership. And then the 40 Days of Purpose from Purpose Driven Lives. So a number of connections and, uh, and books we used to read. And I think that my experience probably mirrors the experience of others in Brazil who have received different waves of emphasis in groups like purpose-driven or sequence-sensitive or charismatic, young, restless, and reformed Calvinistic recent wave. So all, the, all those acquire movements, followers, and, and give repurpose to Brazilian to the Brazilian church. So in other words, the influence that American evangelical plays is, is pretty strong then. It is. It is very strong. I was living in, in Kenya briefly four years ago as Trump became president. I was struck by how much Trump dominated conversations there as well. I'm interested to hear a little bit about if American evangelical celebrities, as you mentioned, kind of trends like purpose-driven and some of these things, do they kind of inform church life there about to the same level that kind of like American politics might dominate kind of political and, and just kind of cultural conversations so is it is it akin is it less is it more I, you know i understand like american culture has a huge footprint overseas but I'm, I'm curious if in the church the american church footprint is about the same size as the american cultural influence on the broader culture there american evangelical church footprint it is very significant certainly and i think it's part of the american cultural influence i think people in latin america and in brazil and specifically look up a lot to the, United, to the United States and love the American way of life and dream of maybe traveling and visiting the country. And I think part of it gets transferred also to church environments. Though, of course, I think when it comes to church groups, I think the influence is probably a little bit less because they know there is more of an ongoing life of the churches, of the denominations in the country. But the influence keeps, keeps strong. It's, it is not as strong as politics over the political, over uh, Brazilian culture, but it's still very strong. Do you remember any of these celebrity pastors or evangelists coming to visit Brazil growing up? Yes, there were. I remember my personal experience, for example, when I was back in Indonesia, my, my church hosted these Willow Creek conferences, right? And Bill Hybos came to speak. It was a, a big thing, and many, many pastors from other churches and leaders from other churches came. And at the end of the year, we did New Year's fun event at the church in which they asked me to, to do a sketch. I, I played Bill Bibles, in which I was just like, came and played, like I said, oh, it's good to be here, wonderful <laughs> to know you. And then a friend would translate me back to Portuguese, just saying things which were nonsense, which like, it was, it was a joke, right? I was sad to hear about the allegations that were brought against him in the past years and his lack of repentance. I had to rethink his legacy in even that humorous moment at the end of the year. But it was an example of the influence an American pastor had in Brazil at that time. I remember this, this personal experience in my, in my hometown. And we would get often, like uh, sometimes Michael W. Smith concert, or recently there was a big Descenda event at a sta stadiums in Brazil. So th this would come um, often. Was there another country or part of the world that had a similar amount of influence besides the U.S.? No, no, not at all. Not at all. Of course, people looked up to evangelical heritage, for example, in the UK and Europe, and were very encouraged by listening about the growth of the church in Africa and in parts of Asia. But I think the U.S. was the main influence. All right. So as you're growing up and you're seeing the U.S. influence, you know, obviously deeply affect how you did church and ministry, what were some of the blind spots that you started to realize or things that didn't necessarily translate well from an American context to a Brazilian one? I was very thankful for everything I've received and for the gospel and the church, of course. I think some of the blind spots were similar in terms of a, a focus on in the, in the individual and personal salvation and not much of a vision for society, for the public square, for having a vision for the kingdom. I think our gospel was very good at saving souls, but did not challenge some of the problems in society, for example, the notion of social classes which can be um, quite uh, prominent in Brazil. And in a way, churches adapted it a little bit. There were a lot of Baptist, Presbyterian, and Methodist churches for the middle class and more charismatic churches for the working class. In my local church, it was located in an affluent neighborhood in Sao Paulo, but it was right next to a favela, a poor community. And over the years, the leaders tried to bridge that gap, like running a social project, planting a church there, but it was a hard, hard gap to bridge. And I remember a mission trip, which came from the United States. We would, I joined them one afternoon. We would go knock on doors 
at the favela, at the slum, and an American visitor would share the testimony, the plan of salvation, and invite people to receive Christ, and I was translating them. And I, I was surprised by the immense success rate we had, apparently, like, about 90% of the people we visited said yes to receiving Christ. But then we left, and I started asking questions over time, like how much of those decisions were genuine, not a result of someone not wanting to say no to a visitor, an American visitor who came to their home, and would those decisions last, and was this the right approach? I think we received some very good things, but there were some blind spots which took some reflection over time to, to think about. Remember, this was a study that happened of evangelical leaders, I think, I don't remember if it was of the group that met in Cape Town with under the uh, Lausanne movement, but it was connected to that. And it was done by the Pew uh, Research uh, Group. And they surveyed all these evangelical leaders, and they found a, a pretty big distinction on evangelism between the Global South evangelical leaders and the Global North. I don't have a U.S. breakdown, but I did. I did see... In the global South, more than a third of evangelical leaders say that they share their faith weekly with someone of another religion. In the global North, it was pretty significantly low. It was 16%. I know that one of the big passions for U.S. evangelicals as they have gone overseas was emphasizing personal evangelism. But it's happening more in the places, I think it may be happening more in the places where we, where American evangelicals have sent people than it may be happening in the U.S. itself. I'm curious about how might evangelism attitudes be different in the U.S. and in either Brazil or in, or in Italy? Evangelism was taken as a big priority in Brazil and churches have grown a lot because of it. I would say our approach would be slightly more communal and less individualistic, a lot about trying to establish healthy and close relationships with people who don't share our faith and uh, gaining people's trust and uh, showing acts of kindness and loving them and often trying to have events or connecting connection points in which people would come. I think people eventually came to question approaches like distributing tracts or visiting homes like, uh, like I shared or doing events at the, at the, at the square, someplace at the street, and over time favor more relational approaches. So I want to talk about politics. Can you say a little bit about how evangelicals in Brazil were engaged in politics growing up, Renee? I know there's a different situation now, but I'm curious what it was like for you growing up and how that's changed. Yes, my experience growing up is that politics was very rarely spoken of. We held to a notion of separation of church and state, a concern for personal morality and changing people's hearts. And not much of awareness of society and uh, what was going on and the poverty and the challenges of Brazilian society. So uh, in a sense, it was a political approach, which is, of course, it is a, ends up being a political approach in a certain way, even if you don't talk about it. How did you kind of experience American evangelical political priorities showing up? Was that ever something that you heard being preached about or did that start to change at all as you grew up? Yes, we did. Uh, here it was a, a glimpse. It was a, a bigger deal among U.S. evangelicals, especially the issue of abortion as I, as I grew up. And it was something that people, of course, didn't want, uh, didn't support abortion, but it wasn't, wasn't something which was really discussed or there were protests about or much debates about. I think um, growing up, evangelicals were more willing to try to grow as a community, grow local churches, then try to have much of a vision or reflection about society and try to do things differently, at least in my experience. You have not stayed in Brazil. We mentioned at the top of the show, you've lived in a number of different countries. When you moved to Europe, how did you start to see how European, specifically Western European countries, how those evangelical communities related to American evangelicals? My experience was doing some studies in Germany and then UK, and then living for the past 11 years in Italy. My experience is that European evangelicals saw American evangelicals with a lot of gratitude for, for the witness, for the vitality, for the faith, for the devotion, the generosity. They didn't look up as much, I would say, like uh, compared to Latin America, more like uh, brothers or fellow believers that didn't have as much influence. When something came from the U.S., it was often appreciated, but they were often trying to be more critical of it. Like, would this work in our context? Would this fit? And often the answer was no. So I think there was that, part, that posture I encountered. This is going back to that same survey. On political priorities, 
that was one of the biggest gaps that this Pew study found. 81% of all of these evangelical leaders around the globe said that the government must take care of very poor people who cannot take care of themselves. That's a pretty significant number. For the US, it was a bare majority. It was 56% of the US leaders. And it was, you know, considerably way down the list in, in terms of countries that it agreed on that. As you've been in Brazil and you, you've been in you've been in affluent areas of Brazil, you've seen poor areas of Brazil, been in Italy, in Rome among a evangelical strong minority, but also still in a, a fairly affluent Western nation. I'm curious about how you see evangelical views of what the government should be doing about poverty shifting and whether American kind of conservative politics and its view of, of that has affected uh, evangelical views abroad or are evangelicals abroad being informed by something else. This was the thing that, you know, going back in the day that like people like Rene Padilla were, you know, helped to kind of challenge American evangelicals on, you know, Rene Padilla being a Latin American evangelical voice and, you know, and to another degree, John Stott, you know, saying like, hey man, you know, we got to not just acts of mercy, but also acts of political justice on behalf of the poor that we need to be speaking in, into. So yeah, I'm curious about how uh, that outlier America view of, of government is affecting the global conversation among evangelicals? I think in that sense, the U.S. perspective among evangelicals, it is a little bit more outlier. I didn't see like caring for the poor as being a very controversial debate among Christians in Brazil or, or elsewhere where, where I've lived. And people um, like it was kind of a kind of a all hands on deck approach, like try to do, let's try to do as much as we can. And the government tries to do as much as the government can. And though we did feel some of some of this perspective that it was uh, maybe a little bit troublesome, seen by some U.S. Christians uh, trying to have the government not became too too large and not giving too many handouts to people and being a, a little bit concerned about that. The story I often heard in Brazil, as you mentioned, like Latin American theologians playing a big big role in the Lausanne Conference in '74, in terms of arguing for. A, Viewing the the gospel, not just in terms of social, sorry, personal salvation, but also political uh, social implications. I heard this story retold often how people appreciated the the witness of uh, Latin American theologians and trying to help the global church and the evangelical church embrace its social commandment, like to love our neighbors as much as we embrace also like the cross and grace and personal redemption. Renee, you, you were in all of these circles, and obviously you could feel the presence of American evangelicals in, in many of them. We've talked a little bit about some of the critiques just now, but what other critiques did you hear? I mean, I'm thinking about stuff that may have had to do with the war in Iraq, for instance, or other really close political relationships, or just potentially American you know, capitalism or materialism or some of these other ways that seem pretty integral parts of American culture. You know, do, do you remember any of these other critiques? And do you remember, you know, when those critiques were made, just how responsive you saw American evangelicals being to listening or being open to listen to those from outside of the U.S. context? Uh, yes, uh, I did. Um, I saw that, the, of course, the Iraq war was, uh, was controversial outside uh, of, of the United States. And some other issues about it was both like um, a love, uh, an admiration relationship in terms of uh, the uh, American economy and uh, the prosperity and WalMarts and all those things. But at the same time, a feeling that the baby is a little bit too much and the materialism and the values that come along with it. What I noticed within church circles were some people pointing out to certain emphasis, like the emphasis on technology, technique, numbers and best practices. Like in a commendable pursuit of church growth, sometimes churches adopt a little bit of a business mindset. And another principle, another issue I thought I heard people talking about was the homogeneous principle that arose out of the church growth movement. They led to churches which were very homogeneous in terms of race and social class. At least that was my experience in Brazil. And also that Western Christians in general and American Christians in particular saw the world as a mission field, which was wonderful but not as much a place to learn and, and receive from. Like the unspoken assumption was we come to teach and to give, maybe not as much learn and to receive. That was the perspective. But I think over time, 
and my experience was to notice a greater awareness of the multicultural and multi-ethnic nature of the church, a greater appreciation of the global church and the gifts different nationalities can bring to the body, and people in, in the U.S. Much, being much more willing to learn and, and visit and uh, as much as, as teaching others. So I think there was a good, some good development in that sense. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. So then, <laughs> 2016 happens. What do you remember was the conversation immediately after the American election with all your non-American church friends? When Trump was elected, people tried to understand, tried to uh, put themselves in, in the shoes and understood that, for example, there were issues like the pro-life uh, position, the desire for conservative justice, justices, also two-party system that gives, gave you eventually like two options and you choose one or the other. People, I think, tried to understand, but in a way, my friends and I, were, many were, were shocked, like uh, trying to imagine like why and how could fellow believers we love and respect otherwise support a candidate which had a, such a bombastic and ungodly conduct. And I think for us, the calculus outside the United States, was it wasn't worth it. Like, uh, don't vote for, uh, for someone like that. And like, that, let's not align with that. And people were trying to understand, but being a little bit shocked by that as well. Did anyone kind of feel like, you know, from a foreign policy standpoint, like, oh, I wonder if these American Christians are aware of what type of effect this might have for the lives and well-being of, you know, of other believers in other countries. And that, and this could be something that could be true for other presidents than just Trump as well. I think there is one issue in terms of which is, of course, dear to people around the world because they feel the influence and uh, how, much, how the direction the United States takes. But often it becomes a small concern for, for often for voters when it comes to the economy or social concerns. It, it, it often, it rarely, it is a major point of contrast. Maybe one example would be the Iraq war, which was, was a big issue at the time for, uh, in uh, U.S. politics. But I think people around the world would wish people would be a little bit more concerned and aware of how much foreign policy views voters vote for then become implemented and then get a big impact in the development of nations, how much aid there is and how business is conducted and if wars are started or not, it, it has a big impact. One of the things that we've been talking about at Christianity and, and we had this uh, recent podcast on Christian nationalism, one of the big conversations that we're having among American evangelicals is this question of how much should the Bible be the official law of the land? And, you know, how much should Christianity be identified as, you know, an explicitly Christian nation? Other kind of markers of kind of Christian nationalism. It is interesting to me as we've as we've talked about kind of the, the dangers of, of Christian nationalism or of nationalism at large, when you look globally, what I'm trying to understand a little bit more is the Mer America actually has fewer Christians or at least Christian leaders, who would say yes to uh, the Bible should be the official law of the land. But in this, you know, in this report, it found that 58% of global South leaders said the Bible should be the official law of the land. Uh, and when you look at kind of the global North, only 28% of leaders said this. Now that's even, you know, even the case in, in places where the the government, you know, is is somewhat antagonistic to evangelical Christianity. I'm kind of curious about what you 
experience and what you see going on there in terms of evangelical attitudes about the ways in which the Bible should inform policy and and kind of that kind of pluralistic attitude of you know, in a democracy, Christians should argue, you know, should should argue for justice, but not necessarily have the Bible be the law of the land in a way that would would make it difficult for a non-Christian to follow the law here. Tell me, tell me what you're observing there. I resonate with uh, with the, with that research. I think that that is the case among people in, in Brazil and Latin America and what I've seen in, in other developing nations. As the Christian faith gains more more followers, people often haven't really thought through the implications of them bringing that into into power and politics in a way that maybe people in Christianized nations for centuries have already tried to do that and see that maybe not being productive or leading to backlash. In Brazil, for example, there is a very prominent congressional evangelical group which tries to be vocal and tries to be a lot um, gain favors and access for the for the evangelical church. But at least in my opinion, it is not it is not productive. It doesn't help people have a positive view of the faith or being willing to know more about the evangelical faith because it, it feels like a more a very transactional approach to power. Like we're trying to gain numbers now, we want to have some political clouds, and so let's press on these issues. I hope that in these nations, people will eventually gain a little bit more experience. And try to see the public arena as an arena in which to serve and bless everybody and try to pursue a, a fair and just society in which all groups, all religious groups, have possibility of, of working and, and, and spreading and sharing our views. And we, of course, believe that the truth will prevail and that the, uh, people will, many will decide to follow Christ. But not try to have a, a favored position in which was from back then in ancient Rome and then a little bit of this societies are trying to pursue that path as well. Yeah, it's interesting because you know we talked about this a little bit on the on the Christian nationalism podcast episode. The outcomes and what happens to American whites and American blacks who agree with certain of these statements about Christian nationalism, like the Bible should be the law of the land, and you know America should be explicitly a Christian country, and you know Christianity should get special priority in this country. That white Christians and black Christians may both uh, agree with that, but the implications and kind of what they see as the policy outcomes for that can be really, really different. And so for a black Christian, a black Christian American who agrees to those statements, it tends to push them much more towards justice activities and much more towards more, more justice activities that aren't even necessarily racial justice issues. And for white Christians in America, it tends to be a little bit more push them towards things like uh, displays of the Ten Commandments uh, on public properties and some uh, a little bit more displays. And I'm wondering if in different countries, as we're seeing evangelicals and Pentecostals have more political clout, if some of that is changing. Like It's one thing to kind of look at that and say, the, the Bible should be the law of the land when you are a small and oppressed minority in, in say the Middle East or in, in a place that is evangelical Protestants would be, you know, oppressed like, uh, you know, in some States of Mexico or, or in some places in South America. But as Christianity becomes more, uh, especially evangelical forms of Christianity become more politically powerful and culturally powerful. We're seeing in you know, East Africa and Southern Africa, and Brazil, and some of these other places, if the way in which evangelicals are talking about the Bible should be the law of the land or the Bible, how the Bible should inform politics, if that changes, if it's still manifesting itself on social justice areas, or if it starts to, like we might be seeing in America, it starts to inform how can Christians amass more, more and more cultural and political power. Fortunately, the, la- the latter, I think it often tries, it, um, it becomes displays of clout and of power. The example which came to mind as you were as you were talking was Prosperity Gospel Church in Brazil, which acquired TV station and which is very prominent, has reached a lot of people and has a have a, their, their congressmen and they're trying to to make their, their influence felt. And they built a very large temple in Brazil which mimics the Solomon's temple, the first Jerusalem temple. So they did it a replica in Brazil. And in a sense, these are very stakes on the ground and affirmance of our declarations of our own power and positions. But it, the way it often plays out in, in society, the, the backlash is like it makes people 
less willing to to explore that, less willing to hear about what is this Christian faith, and uh, and more actually like uh, become scared of, of those of those developments and and feeling a little bit of a kind of peculiar and it's a more like a almost like a sectish approach in which people instead of seeing um as you mentioned with among black Americans trying to pursue justice for all and uh, serving the community and seeing the flourishing of our neighborhoods, which I think is a much more winsome approach and trying to share our position, search our what we uh, resources, then trying to impose through symbols our positions. I want to take us back to just the, the Trump presidency, because as you probably had observed, Renee, there were a lot of white evangelical leaders who really stuck with Trump throughout the four years and were very reticent to criticize some of the actions that I think a lot of other people found very, very controversial or wrong. Do you remember a particular moment or two from his presidency when yeah, leaders outside the U.S. kind of expected, especially white evangelical leaders, to say something to rebuke him, and they did not? In honesty, the moments were so many, right? And you would wish, oh, maybe this this part, this time, maybe this crisis, this, maybe this tweet. Often it did not come. So the moment which struck me the most, which was before his, his election in 2016, that when the Access Hollywood tape came out, and how it was heartbreaking to see someone like boasting joyfully of adultery and sexual assault and grabbing women. That was the moment I felt like, oh, like how can someone justify that? But people found a way of not saying anything or saying it's locker room talk. And it was, I think, very appreciative of people who spoke out, like Beth Moore, I think was a very strong example, and Russell Moore and others. I think John Piper writing uh, I think an article about, about that, if I remember well. On the other hand, many, many who kept on saying maybe, oh, the, the, the other side is worse. We cannot but support this. I remember specifically I taught a, a theological, systematic theology at a seminary for a, for a semester back then. And uh, one of the books I had assigned for people from, from Gruden uh, to read as a, as a possible reading list. And then he came in out very strongly, even after the Essex Hollywood tape, suggesting Christians should vote for Trump. So there was a number of leaders. Some, of course, spoke out against. But my sense is that many either didn't, or those who did were lost in the in the chorus of those who supported the, that candidacy very, very strongly. Do you remember hearing any type of like, a different tone or a different way relating to things from American evangelical leaders who lived overseas or who were a bigger part of international communities? You know, missionaries, for instances, or heads of international parachurch organizations? Yes, I have. Yes, I have, certainly. I think it, it helps a lot when lives outside the country, and especially outside the media ecosystem, being able to listen to a number of views and receive news in different languages. My experience that uh, seeing people who retain their convictions, and maybe aren't as vocal because it's a different society, but at the same time, many who come to get a greater sense of perspective and see things more critically, and often it becomes a matter of uh, soul-searching and, and uh, pain, pain and maybe division of within families. I think, for example, like a missionary couple of very good friends of mine here in Rome who, who do wonderful work and were sharing with me how he was interacting with their parents who live in the Midwest and who have supported Trump throughout. And how they were, it was uh, some delicate conversations, right, between children and, and parents, how those who live outside the country and those who live within it. And I've had my own uh, conversation with um, cousins of mine who have moved to, to the U.S. and maybe are very uh, strong supporters. And with some very good conversations, very good uh, respective conversations, one gets, gets a sense that um, it matters a lot where you live and the kinds, the kinds of news you receive. I think it's important that we don't paint the entire church outside of the U.S. as, you know, not supporting Trump or not supporting, you know, American evangelicals who did support Trump. So you know, where would you encounter those communities, Renee? And often, why were they very supportive of Trump and his policies? was among people where the uh, American influence were foremost in the way, for example, certain ministries are run or the leadership of those ministries are, is American-led. Or if it is, and at least the tacit assumption is that uh, those are the assumptions and those are often that does not get questioned. What I've seen outside from among other nations, was not so much a direct support for Trump himself, but more like support for Trump-like politicians, like Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, or here in Italy we have uh, one called Matteo Salvini, 
than Viktor Orban in Hungary, like person who people who did politics in a certain way, like a strongman persona, nationalistic policies, policies, and who used religious symbols and language, not because they were believers uh, per se, but to attract support from people of faith. So I think Pope Trump um, emboldened these kind of politicians and an authoritarian kind of personality in other nations. And I saw people supporting those politicians in their nations. To what extent would you say that the Brazilian evangelical community has begun to kind of look similar to the U.S. evangelical community with regards to how they engage politics? Oh, it has become very similar. Like, as I mentioned in the beginning, like this this parallel, this mirrored effect, this big influence from American culture. In Brazil, I think it, 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 is, it becomes almost the same debates. Before, like in the, maybe the past 10 years or so, the big debate uh, was, of course, about prosperity theology, like some churches who advocated that growing a lot, and then others who were very critical of it and uh, thought it was, uh, wasn't the gospel when you present the, go- uh, the, the faith that, in that way. Though the debate was almost like um, now the, the, the lines of division and debate now really follow like uh, the current president, which is almost like a mirror of, of Trump in Brazil. Uh, his name is Jair Bolsonaro. Are you for him? Are you against him? And then people sharing WhatsApp messages, which often becomes fake news, and and then uh, there leads some some proxy debates. So the the most recent one was about the virus, like how real is the virus? Is it dangerous? Should we use masks or not? Should uh, churches press on to stay open, or should we be careful and meet online and and try to advocate for for masks? masks. Almost the same debates and same things get transposed in a way which oh, which is is not encouraging, I think. One of the things I'm wondering about is, you know, evangelical, I'm, Christianity, we're very anxious about the idea of the word evangelicalism being defined purely politically, right? That we don't want evangelical. We like the, we, we like the word evangelical. It means something very specific to us kind of religiously and kind of spiritually. It is always frustrating when it just becomes used in a kind of politically or sociological sense. But there is, an idea in which evangelicalism is not super defined as a deep set of religious beliefs. I mean, you're not going to, you know, evangelicals are going to disagree on things like what, how should the church be structured? You know, what kind of sacraments do you use? Or, you know, even evangelicals ha- have disagreements on some of some major theological disagreements on the, you know, Methodists and Presbyterians can both be evangelicals. At its heart, evangelicalism has been a kind of network. It's been this kind of cross-denominational ecumenical movement in a lot of ways that has brought Christians together, you know, has brought Christians together across the churches around, you know, a passion for evangelism and around a passion for the Bible and, and biblical authority, a passion for a specific uh, personal relationship with Jesus. These are awesome things, but it has largely been rallying around those things through networks, right? Th- so through, in one way, large leaders like Billy Graham, but also I- extremely through organizations like like this IFES that you've been part of. You've spoken, you were one of the main speakers at Urbana 18. Urbana 18 has been, Urbana. the Urbana conferences have been a core and a key thing for bringing you know, up and coming evangelicals, especially students together. The Lausanne movement has done some of this. But I'm interested to hear from you, to what degree are evangelical networks forming and growing without the US needing to be a key part of that? And to what degree are American evangelicals still an important or the main kind of glue pulling together evangelicals across countries? Like you are a connector now between Italian evangelicals and Brazilian evangelicals. Are you seeing more of these relationships happening without connections to the U.S.? Or still are U.S. bodies and organizations still largely the groups convening and, and, and helping those friendships to flourish? There was a, a wonderful input from American and Western evangelicals in the 20th century in uh, launching movements like Lausanne, IFES, IFES, International Fellowship of Evangelical Students, then the Evangelical Alliances, which flourished. So I think those movements were led, were were started, but I think nowadays they they go ahead very much with participation of people in many nations, often without the convening uh, necessity 
of maybe the American church leading or proposing things. It's still, of course, the main and most influential country within global evangelicalism. But it's, I think it's a very positive thing to see people relating across countries, across continents, to help look, look for uh, Christians to, uh, for spiritual leadership around the world. I think it's a very healthy uh, development. Often we have a closer reality than, for example, another nation. You can see a few some similarities, also see some of each other's blind spots and call out the best of the other. So I think I was certainly helped as people from outside the, uh, Brazil helped me see some of my own blind spots in Brazil. So I think it's a very positive development when we can have global Christians interacting with each other in an equal manner. I think that's a very positive thing. Renee, do you think that the last four years have has hurt the credibility of the American evangelical church? And if so, in, in which ways? Yes, I, I'm, I'm sorry to say, but I think in part it has. Of course, it's not a blanket statement. We can see nuances and many people did not support Trump or voted for him reluctantly. The tough spot people faith found themselves in, in a two-party system. Some people being vocal and, uh, of course, African-American Christians being very vocal. Uh, so that was, I think, very helpful. But there is a feeling, I think, that um, the American Evangelical Church, at least in the past four years, lost part of its moral authority and spiritual leadership. That too many leaders, unfortunately, supported Trump critically. That too many churchgoers supported church, uh, Trump joyfully. And that too many prophets in the charismatic movement predicted a second term, which did not come to pass. My sense is that people are clear on the gospel, like of Christ and the cross and repentance and faith and the new birth. But when it comes to the church's relation to society, I think that's something which, which would be helpful to think a little bit more about. Like how, to what extent can we, should we get involved in politics? How can we conceive the public sphere in ways that are not political, trying to seek the common good? without falling into partisanship. So I think these are some key questions in which, of course, I've been asked in the United States and people around the world as well, so as we can see how movements like that can happen, are happening and can happen in other countries, and how we can be more nuanced and more thoughtful when it comes to supporting parties and candidates, even if we share some policy platforms, but maybe try to be a little bit more thoughtful about that. For American evangelical leaders who want to start to rebuild that trust and regain credibility with their global brothers and sisters, what type of posture and steps would you suggest that they take? Awareness is, is a wonderful, like a, a, these kind of conversations I think are very helpful and be able to listen to other people's perspective and having even humility of listening how, oh, my Developments in my country can impact people in another country. And it's a key opportunity to model this being quick to listen, being teachable, being humble, uh, demonstrating self-awareness. And from that will be a place of authority then to invite others to be uh, become aware of each culture's, culture's idols, because every culture has their own personal and cultural and political idols. And then lead all of us in awareness of a repentance of our own uh, blind spots and idols. And so I think it's an occasion to model humility, example, and and good listening. Thank you very much, Renee, for your thoughts. We invite people, as usual, to send us your own thoughts. You can do that by sending us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. That is podcast with an S. We're also on Twitter at CT Podcasts. And again, if you work in a context that is outside of the U.S. or if you are non-American, we would love to hear your own thoughts and reactions to this particular episode. And obviously, if you're in the U.S., feel free to send us thoughts and your reactions as well. All right. Now is the time of the show that we call Slow to Speak, which is when we get to hear from all of you. We recorded our Christian nationalism episode two weeks ago. And wow, we definitely got a lot of emails from a lot of you. Normally, we try to read on the show everything that comes in. We are not going to have time to do that this week on the show, but I want to thank everyone for all of your feedback. I saw folks talking about this on social media, and we enjoyed all the engagement that you gave to us in our inbox. Thank you so much, everyone, for letting us know that you appreciated the episode. I'm going to read a letter right now from a woman named Lauren. So she writes, Dear Morgan and Ted, at one point, Ted, you were saying 
how you were shocked by some statistics and the guest Paul responded that some would say the opposite. We are definitely in the opposite camp, at least in the last few years. We live in the rural Midwest and unfortunately, this is our current experience. We are at a loss as to what to do. Morgan asked some questions about what we can do to help and the guest spoke about loving people within the church and also encouraging pastors to speak against this. My question is, what if the church leadership has fallen prey to this thinking? Our pastor and many of the small elder board are currently entrenched in believing conspiracies. We've taken steps to meet with them individually and as a board, and my husband went to church to speak up to the congregation this past week, feeling we had no other choice after months of conversations. Before 2020, these things were not apparent to us in our church, but now we have separated ourselves from the church, except efforts to talk to leaders in the congregation because of both needing to protect our daughter with disabilities from getting sick with COVID, as well as being extremely concerned about the nature of these radical views being pushed more and more openly by leadership and not wanting our children to have any part in that. They are all very young. I'm not speaking of people just disagreeing on who to vote for, but actual conspiracy theories, such as the pandemic is a government plot to take away our religious freedom that COVID deaths are a lie, telling people they're being persecuted, need to stand firm against it, and so on. The us versus them mentality is rampant in the teaching right now. I will add it honestly, we have noticed ourselves falling into this mentality of us versus them on the other side of the spectrum, though, so we are now working to address that in ourselves, too. Your episode encouraged lots of compassion towards brothers and sisters being led astray, and it spoke to our hearts to encourage us to keep going back to God to address our bitterness towards them in our hearts. I'm glad that you tackled this hard conversation with your episode and gave some resources to learn more. We feel isolated in the way we view how we should present Christ to the world and have been virtually attending a church and online small group an hour away because we don't know anyone anywhere else to go in our small community. We don't have many solutions, but this episode did bring light for the listeners exactly what we have been struggling with this year. and It helped us feel less alone. Now, to handle whatever happens with grace and wisdom and peace, I think we all need to pray for the church in the U.S. for true compassion for us all. Lauren, I really appreciate you writing us and sharing your experience. I'm really glad that this episode gave you some resources and hopefully gave you a sense of feeling less alone in what seems like has been a very lonely time. Obviously, the pandemic has been an extremely lonely time in many obvious ways, such as not seeing people, but feeling isolated from a community that you were close to sounds even harder. I think some of the issues that you're talking about here are probably things that we will explore over the course of this year, as I'm sure, even though you feel alone, you are not alone in this sense of alienation you feel from those that you would like to trust. Appreciate you sharing all of this with us. Part of CT's key goals is to make people feel less alone as they follow Christ and also to feel more connected to people who are following Christ who are different than them in important ways. So that's one of the reasons we did today's episode, looking at the global Christian responses to what's happening in America. Also one reason why we look at what's going on on Republican sides, Democratic sides, people who don't feel home in any in any place. But we are a body that sometimes has hurting and members that don't want to talk to each other. CT is part of that. We sometimes talk about the Christianity today as being the nervous system for the body of Christ, helping different parts of the body speak to each other. Speaking of that, here's our next letter. Hello, I listened to your podcast this morning. I would not characterize myself as a Christian nationalist by your definition. I am a believer slash Christ follower. I'm also a Trump supporter as far as my political views are concerned, completely separate from my Christian beliefs. I completely disagree and condemn the rioting that occurred at the Capitol recently and the display of Christian symbols. I'm sure that Biden slash Democratic Party supporters can support candidates and parties without agreeing with everything that person or party does or says. I appreciate your uh, discussion with uh, Dr. Miller on Christian nationalism. I had not heard the definition before and agree that this is something the church should guard against and is unhealthy. But it's unfortunate that you seem to equate all Trump supporters or conservatives, things like Fox News listeners, with Christian nationalists. It was said that people need to be reprogrammed, which is a concerning choice of words. It would seem that churches should guard against watching CNN or any other news outlet equally to Fox News. I believe that your grouping of all conservatives, Republicans, and Trump supporters with Christian nationalists is dangerous and further divisive. If we are humble ourselves and seek truth, it seems that people on the liberal and Democratic Party Biden side of issues should also seek that same truth and be open to hearing others' opinions. As a person with conservative views, it is frustrating to be grouped with racists or extremists all the time. 
feels like I have to hide my opinion so that I'm not labeled as such. I fear that your own political biases and consumption of liberal-leaning media are blinding you from seeing how much you link them with, quote, truth. Thank you for your podcast and for requesting feedback, Carrie LeFay. Thanks, Carrie. Appreciate it. You know, one of the reasons we did that podcast was to make some of those distinctions that you're making between conservatives, certainly I consider myself a conservative, Republicans, Trump supporters with Christian nationalists. I mean, there are lots of different reasons why people voted for Trump. But certainly, there's also within, <laughs> as we said, when we saw the uh, symbols and some of the um, rhetoric at, at the Capitol and at the insurrection, there was something going on there that we wanted to take a hard look at and something that does connect to some of the ways in which God and country rhetoric has changed in evangelical and, and other Christian in the last few years. We'll get at that. We're going to keep getting into some of the nuances of it. And we are going to keep challenging people on different sides of the, on various sides. There's not two sides, on many, many sides of political ideology and even different parts of the Christian church to reconsider what they may have created as idols. So thanks for, thanks for writing, Carrie. Yeah, it was great to hear from you, Carrie. And I also just appreciate the straightforward tone of your letter too. It's nice to have. Yeah, I like hearing from people from different sides interacting with this stuff, and I appreciate how you went through your thoughts. All right, I'm going to read an email now from Jessica Ferris. She says, hi, I listened to your podcast, and I think a big piece you may be missing, particularly when talking about where this is concentrated, is the white homeschool movement. The state Christian organizations, the local co-ops, and the Christian curriculum is built on the bedrock of Christian nationalism. It's not intertwined. It is it. If you try to speak against it, if you try to speak out about racism, if you try to speak out about social justice, you are branded as a dangerous heretic, attacked, and put out of the group. Voting Democrat is akin to losing your salvation. I wish I had the words to adequately explain the gravity of the problem. Thank you for what you do. This is from Jessica Ferris, who lives in, she lives in Shakopee, Minnesota. Thank you, Jessica. That's that's really helpful. I uh one thing that I have appreciated learning about at Christianity Day is the varieties of Christian homeschoolers. And I definitely have seen what you've seen with kind of Christian nationalist strain of Christian homeschooling. But I've also been really interested to see in some other Christian homeschooling uh, circles uh, a bit of a pushback. In fact, it's in some ways a growing pushback to some of the Christian nationalism. Uh, World Magazine is a, a place that has, you know, is, is largely, you know, kind of started as a magazine to help homeschool families. What they have published, again, uh, taking issue with some of the idolatries of, of intertwining God and country and, and mistaking country for God, and even some of the uh, stances that they took uh, against Trump were fairly remarkable to me. So, yeah, I, I see what you see. I also see some other things going on in homeschooling. So we will continue to cover some of that in, in CT. I'll just note that Jessica also noted that she was in her 14th year of homeschooling. Jessica, I have also seen some different Facebook groups, specifically from Black families who are trying to get into homeschooling, many of them who are wrestling with a lot of the things that you are wrestling with right here. So potentially reaching out to some of them, they may be able to connect you to the resources that keep them going and sustain them in homeschooling amidst their frustrations. All right. Next letter for you. You want to read, Ted? I'll read it. I am so thankful for your Christian nationalism podcast. About every five minutes, I kept going, dang, y'all, there's no way they're going to make more and more and better and more resonant points than they're making right now. And you just kept doing it. The point of enablers versus ideologues being sheep and wolves really hit home. I like the dang, y'all. You know, right, Morgan? That, you know, all caps. It was all caps. caps. Dang, y'all. <laughs> right back to the letter. This intense feeling of being seen, being recognized, feeling like I've just, I've been told I just didn't get it, or I was the problem, I, I, or that I frankly was a baby killer enabler for the past several years because I felt the rhetoric and practice of many of my fellow evangelicals is more darker and certainly more political, even political about things we could have differences of opinion over with similar religious zeal. Ted, your point about not understanding how the God and country rhetoric fit really hit home and how alien it's always felt for me as well. Morgan, I feel like you consistently ask questions which draw out incredible conversations and stuff I'm not thinking about in the moment, but ends up bringing out more meaningful conversations. I could have listened to nine hours of this. <laughs> Thank you both uh, and CT so much. You know, that's a lot of letters and we probably could have gotten nine hours of letters with the number of letters we got on Christian nationalism. Dang y'all. Thanks for uh, the feedback. Thank you for listening. 
Thanks, Thanks for, for sharing. About it, truly. We definitely want your feedback. And today, like I said, if you are overseas, we definitely would value hearing your opinion, as particular in reaction to this week. So send it to us, podcasts with an S at ChristianityToday.com. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, which is when we ask everyone to share something that has recently brought them joy. You ready to go, Ted? I am. Although I think it's a, it's somewhat of a repeat, but you know, it's a repeat kind of time in this COVID era. So most of the board games I've been playing are ones I've already mentioned. Uh, so I'll skip that this week and just say one of the things that brought me joy this week was my daughter making apple cider glazed pork chops. She has gotten really into cooking and has been going through cookbooks and finding stuff she wants to make. And it's just fun seeing her pour her creative energies into cooking cooking what dinner. What is your process of picking like the recipe? Like how does she go about that part? That's a great question. I, I think she just has a few books that she looks at and says, Matt, I can I can do that. That, that sounds <laughs> We have an interesting situation in my family that we have a, one vegetarian. We have one person who is necessarily, ha, you know, has to be uh, gluten-free. I have to kind of be heart healthy. And then another person has some other uh, issues. So like we're always, most a lot of our dinners are kind of three plus one, you know, like, like oh, here's a dinner that'll work for three of us. And then the other person can have, you know, Kind of microwave dinner or you know a simple a simple uh, heat and eat kind of deal so it's always kind of tricky finding recipes that work for you know a majority of us let alone all four of us you know so she's found a bunch of things that she thinks oh this will work for at least three of us and so that's kind of her once you make that cut the recipes that are left in the box <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah you know, you're like oh that that one looks like something i would enjoy eating so oh, i'm not too hard uh to make so I mean, do all like the vegan cookbooks work for you guys? Uh, well, kind of. I mean, yes, in a sense, <laughs> but um, I still Grace doesn't really love beans, and so you know, finding uh, vegetarian meals that don't rely on beans is is a little bit is a little bit on the side. It must be nice for you and your wife though to just get to eat a nice meal prepared by your daughter when you're done with the work day. I'm doing most of the dinners these days, and so it's just nice to you know be like, hey, you know. Have, have another person in the kitchen to make a dinner. It's a lovely, lovely thing. But also it's just a nice, you know, nice to see her pour her creative energies into this and, and have her like, I made this for you. You know, it's, it's just, you know, she's, she's older than the age where she, you know, she's making a lot of, you know, construction paper pictures. She still does that on occasion, but seeing her shift from uh, kind of the construction paper art projects to some of the food creativity still expressing her her love for us in that way is awesome i'm on twitter people can find me there i'm sure if they want to follow me they can it's ted olson with an e my precious moment was last week i went to this church thing on zoom and i mentioned on that thing that i wanted to learn how to surf and so someone on the call ended up connecting me with their surf instructor and so i walked down to the shop the day after that. And I would say that meeting with Roy, the surf instructor, was my precious moment. He is native Hawaiian and he's from Oahu and he was just an absolute character. He told me stories about how the Big Island, for instance, <laughs> became a place where a lot of ranching happens, which I had no idea that there were ranches before that. So that was cool. And he Told me other stories about his relatives. He was the type of person that like, you know, the bus driver went by. He waved to him and said his name. Some other people walked down the street. He said hi to them personally. You know, he just clearly knew a lot of people and was extremely friendly and really warm and loved surfing. And then on Sunday, we went out to surf. And from where we parked in the parking lot to where we got to the beach, he said hi to 10 more people and introduced me to them. So... Just a really lovely human being who loves his job and loves his community and everything that he gets to do. So I would just say, yeah, shout out to Roy. I think hanging out with him is going to be my precious moment for sure. <laughs> Great. I heard your hashtag life goals there for the uh, knowing the name of the bus driver and 10 people you walk down the street. Morgan, you'll, you'll be there. It might take you, might take you a couple more weeks, but you'll, you'll but if be I hang there, out with, I If I hang out with Roy, I feel like my chances are increased, you know? <laughs> will connect me to that. <laughs> yes. So anyway, that was cool. 
people can find me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. All right, Renee, over to you. Yeah, my moment of joy was this past Sunday. We were supposed to celebrate our anniversary as a church, our ninth anniversary as a church plant. But it was a day of, of course, virus restrictions and then a lot of rain. And then the electricity ran out and we didn't know what to do. And we ended up improvising an acoustic service. Like I didn't preach the sermon. It was just like a, a songs and then people uh, praying out loud, the uh, expert Reynos prayers. And it was a wonderful service. It was really improvised. It was a good sense of coming together and overcoming the challenges. It was, it was that moment. That's an awesome moment. How did you handle when the power actually went out? Did people start freaking out or everyone was okay? Yes, uh, we uh, got a little bit uh, worried. We tried to do something that would help the lights come. And then when we, we had 20 minutes to go for the first service, then we just said, let's change our plans. And the band says, okay, we'll do some songs and you guys come in as you want. We have some new people uh, coming in and didn't know how, how they were going to react because we didn't have slides for the songs and some of them weren't believers. But in the end, it was a very, it was a lovely, very spontaneous, very community feel. And it worked out well. So and people ended up saying, we should do this more often. So maybe we should do this more often. <laughs> I agree that there's something about when everything kind of goes wrong, but you're with everyone that feels really powerful. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It does. All right, Renee, tell people where they can find you outside of this. If you Google my name, Renee Brule, you'll have a website which will lead you to the church and different things I'm doing. And then on Twitter and Facebook, Renee Brule, the hashtag. Can you spell your last name for people? Yes, it's B-R-E-U-E-L. Well, that is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Quick to Listen. It is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The music is by Sweeps, and the transcript is done by Yvonne Soon and Bumi Ashola. People can find this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can also go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. You can send us an email at podcast.christianity.com if you want us to know your thoughts. And we will see you all next week. Bye. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.